This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get started into the featured content for today, I want you to know about an ebook called Multiply Disciples by Winfield Bevins, which discipleship.org released in partnership with Exponential. Multiply Disciples draws wisdom from church history by looking at several important disciple-making movements, the Celtic movement, the Moravian movement, and the Methodist movement. These movements offer vital contributions to the church that can help you rediscover the power of making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Author Winfield Bevins is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary, and you can download his ebook, Multiply Disciples, at discipleship.org slash ebooks, or click on the link in the show notes. Today we're featuring an episode from Renew and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum. The episode is called Gospel Allegiance, featuring Matthew Bates. Take a listen. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm really excited to share this material with you because I'm passionate about it. I'm speaking from the heart. Uh, So, uh, yeah, a little bit more just so you get a sense of where I'm coming from, what what I'm all about. Um, I'm sort of a a mutt. I I grew up in a a kind of a a King James-only fundamentalist independent church that didn't even want to talk to anybody else because they were heretics. So I've sort of had to to find my place um, ever after. So... I've certainly pursued um, a lot of different educational opportunities uh, and different churches along the way. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of a mutt um, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, pro-church, uh, but don't really come from a specific background. Uh, currently, I'm at uh, a, uh, a restoration um, sort of background church. It's a non-denominational, but a, a sort of Stone-Campbell movement background. Just to give you a little tiny sense of, um, of, of, of what, where I'm at and who I am. So I'm a New Testament uh, professor at Quincy University, uh, and uh, I write books on uh, ancient uh, theories of scriptural interpretation, uh, uh, doctrine of the Trinity, uh, and most of my work recently has been uh, more themed around salvation, and specifically faith as allegiance. So that's what I'm going to be speaking to you about today, is about a royal gospel and about an allegiant response to the gospel and why that makes sense on kind of the level of foundational theology. Uh, I realize this is the last, you know, kind of track for the day. We're all a little bit weary. Uh, hopefully you tanked up on some coffee before you came in here. But I have a lot of formal material. I probably have like, I mean, if I was to teach all of it, like five hours worth of teaching material on this that I've done in a variety of different contexts. So I'm choosing some of the stuff that I think is, is most important and most impactful here. But at the same time, I'm not sure how long I'll want to go with formal as we might want to just switch over to a Q&A and, uh, and a dialogical format might keep us all awake uh, and, uh, and engaged. So let's, let's do a little bit here then. Uh, the first part I'm going to talk about is renovating the gospel. Uh, and so here I'm drawing from my, my two books, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and uh, the book that he just mentioned, uh, Gospel Allegiance, that just came out some six weeks ago. So uh, yeah, if you, if you, if you want to learn more about those, obviously, uh, I think they do have some of them over there at, at Baker if, if you're interested. Uh, and so what I'm up to, though, is I think that we've been plagued within church culture, and I'm talking about all church culture, like across the spectrum. I teach actually, actually I, I didn't mention this part of my background, I did PhD work at Notre Dame, uh, and teach at a Catholic Franciscan university, but I'm a Protestant. 
So, you know, there's sort of a complex dynamic to all of that. Uh, and so my, my setting is interesting. And one thing that I've, I've observed is that across the spectrum of the church, uh, it seems like there's a lot of gospel confusion. So I, I've been wanting to do some work to try to get toward a more exact gospel. Uh, so um, there were deviant gospels in early Christianity. We know that. Uh, the Apostle Paul's concerned about one in Galatia, right, saying that there are people preaching a different gospel. But we nevertheless know that the apostles were united in affirming the one true gospel. We see Paul saying this, for instance, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, where he says, you know, what, whether those were preaching or I was preaching, you know, we were preaching the, uh, along the same message of Jesus as he's just outlined the gospel for them in 1 Corinthians 15. So we know that they held the gospel in common, and Paul's referring back to the 12 and to the 500 witnesses and to other people who were witnesses of Jesus, saying that they shared a common gospel. So how can we get precise about this common gospel that the early church, uh, the early church possessed? So here's a, a five steps. I don't know how well you can read it. As I, wasn't, I thought I would have a larger screen in here, so I, I, I wasn't aware of the setting and unfortunately made my slides a little small. But um, I'll go ahead and read it through you. So here would be a proposed method if we're going to get real precise. Uh, first of all, maybe we should give priority to uh, the uh, use of the word gospel in the New Testament, where we, we find instances where it's clearly defined or we're getting gospel content. Uh, we actually have very few of those in the New Testament, but they're very significant. And I'm going to walk through, I think, one of the most important ones with you uh, in a few minutes. We should also recognize that the four gospels were named such for a reason uh, from the earliest time. Right, our earliest manuscript evidence calls these uh, euangelion, gospel. Uh, what does that mean uh, and why? We should look at recorded examples of early Christian proclamation. Here I have in mind especially the species in Acts. Everybody agrees the apostles are preaching the gospel there. Uh, is there. Is there common ground? Like, are there, are there things that they keep saying again and again when we look at, you know, Paul's Pentecost, excuse me, Peter's Pentecost speech and Paul later in Pisidian Antioch? Are, are we able to extract a, a gospel core that seems to reoccur? Right? They say a variety of things, but surely there's some common elements. Maybe we should also study uses of the word gospel, in the, uh, not just in the Bible, uh, but the Old Testament, like the ancient Greek version of the, uh, of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament, uses the word euangelion, uh, and also uh, in the Greco-Roman world and the New Testament, uh, obviously the word gospel uh, was used too. So the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek before the New Testament era, and they use the word uh, gospel as part of that. And we should, I think, make careful distinctions between the gospel itself and associated terms and frameworks. For example, the gospel is not identical to its mode of arrival, its method of proclamation, its receipt, or its effects. Um, and I think when we aren't careful about those things, uh, that's part of where we've gotten in trouble, is sometimes we've confused the gospel proper uh, with the effects of the gospel, uh, and uh, by failing to make distinctions along those lines, uh, we have made things gospel that aren't gospel. And I think that ends up splitting the one true church uh, because we think things are gospel that aren't. So uh, we're trying to get toward an exact gospel here. So in case anything that I say from here on out is confusing to you, let me give you my conclusion in advance. Uh, the gospel is a story about how Jesus came to be installed at the right hand of God as king of heaven and earth. Uh, what is the gospel? If we can put it in the shortest, briefest sentence possible, we could maybe say Jesus is the saving king or Jesus is the victorious king. And I put king underlined, right, for a reason. Uh, we're at a conference here about Jesus the king. Uh, we, we, should, we should recognize that's core to the gospel. Sometimes we think that, like, as Christians, like, if you were to go ask a random Christian out there, like, do you believe Jesus is the Lord or the king? They would say, well, of course. 
But whenever uh, you ask somebody to share the gospel, does kingship show up? And if so, in what kind of way? It's oftentimes a tack on, it's like, doesn't really have to do with your salvation, but maybe it has to do later with your discipleship or with uh, your path toward holiness or the, just the, the acknowledgement of who he is. But it doesn't really have to do any, with, with your salvation in any kind of direct way uh, because it's not really part of the gospel. I would suggest to you that might be the largest problem that we've had within evangelicalism has been an exclusion of any kind of bite to Jesus's kingship, that uh, there might be some sort of vague acknowledgement that he's king, uh, but that it hasn't really been central to the gospel in the way that it needs to be, especially in how it's informed what it means to respond appropriately to the gospel, partly because of concerns over faith works. Uh, that I think that, that sort of plagued us so that we have been leery about Jesus' kingship in ways that we just shouldn't be. So Jesus is the saving king. So I'm going to start by just giving you some um, examples from, uh, I think it was my point number four there, that we should look at how the, the word gospel was being used in the larger Greco-Roman world. Uh, let me give you a couple examples so you can see a little bit about how gospel was being used in the larger Greco-Roman world. This is from the fa famous Prenex inscription of 9 BC, so we know exactly when this was produced. Uh, and it was, it's found in modern-day Turkey, so this is where Paul was on mission. Right, so this is right in the world we're talking about. And it's talking about Caesar Augustus, uh, who is the Caesar, who was the king, uh, or was the Caesar when Jesus was born, right, the emperor. Uh, and this is what it says. So this is, a, a, this is an inscription that's praising Caesar Augustus. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit my, humankind, sending him as a savior, a soter, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Notice that this savior, Caesar Augustus, brings peace. He's the one that brings about the Pax Romana, right? Uh, the peace that uh, was characteristic of Jesus's, uh, the time period of Jesus's birth. That he might end, end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors, and notice that language of benefaction, connected to imperial rule, like, what does an emperor do? He brings benefits to his people. Um, and he also expects loyalty from his people, right? There's a, a kind of a patron-client relationship between the emperor and those who are under his patronage, okay? Uh, this is all important for framing what we think the gospel is, I will argue, and what an adequate response to it entails. Surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus, Notice he's even called God here, um, was the beginning of the good tidings, the euangelion. Here we find the exact same word uh, that is our word that we get gospel from or good news from. Uh, he was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Notice that Caesar Augustus here uh, is evaluated in retrospect as having brought good tidings to the world, good news to the world, uh, just by virtue of his birth because he ended up bringing such marvelous benefits. All right, that's one example of gospel in the Greco-Roman world. Let's look at a, a couple others. Uh, Paul's contemporary Josephus, who's a Jewish historian uh, who lived just after the time of the Apostle Paul. Well, he was active writing just after the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, uh, he actually um, bore witness to events that happened during the Jewish war uh, with Rome between 66 and 70 AD. Uh, and as part of that, the, the, the Pax Romana kind of collapsed temporarily. And there was a time period of Roman civil war. There were four different emperors. Uh, and the one that eventually emerged and seized control was Vespasian. 
Uh, and so uh, we see that this news about Vespasian finally bringing an end to the Civil War and becoming the Caesar is heralded as good news. Fame carried the news about Vespasian abroad more suddenly than one could have thought, that he was emperor over the East, upon which every city kept festivals and celebrated sacrifices and oblations for such euangelia, such good news. Right? It's the plural form of, of the word gospel. Uh, so uh, we find it there. Again, another statement also from Josephus. And now as Vespasian was come to Alexandria, this good news, euangelia, came from Rome. And at the same time came embassies from all his own habitable earth to congratulate him upon his advancement. All right, so I want to point out here that the good news is, uh, for Josephus at least, is that Vespasian has become the new emperor. It's gospel, regardless of whether he has offered clemency to his enemies or will rule wisely in the future. It's just his ascension itself to the imperial office, right? That is the basis of his, uh, his uh, gospel. Uh, this shows that gospel meant glad tidings associated with royal rule, quite apart from any connection with salvation from sins. Uh, here, uh, I would be critiquing John Piper's view in his book, The Future of Justification, where John Piper argues that the gospel can't possibly be good news for us apart from justification by faith. Because he says that otherwise we're just condemned as sinners. There's a righteous God. We've sinned and offended against him. And so justification must be part of the good news in order for it to actually be good news. Um, there may be a grain of truth to some of that. I would argue that he's confused uh, the offer of salvation with the benefits, though. He's sort of mixed up gospel and gospel effect or gospel benefit there. Um, as the real truth of the matter is that the word gospel was used to talk about somebody who has become the new king, regardless of whether or not he's going to rule well or offer, offer clemency. So he's sort of forcing the word into, I think, uh, problematic categories. Uh, and so uh, I would be slightly critical of John Piper's view. Uh, I think that he's right, though, that Jesus' death for our sins has to be for us in some way. But I would see that as a benefit offered from the gospel, not part of the gospel proper. It's part of our response to the gospel that we receive that benefit. The offer of salvation is for us all, uh, but justification is part of the benefit we receive. All right, um, so we, we have passages where we get some specific gospel content. Uh, we have Jesus' proclamation. Uh, let's, we'll, we'll, I, I don't have time to go through all of them, but we'll do this one in Mark, and then I'm going to jump to the one in Romans. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, and what's he doing? Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. This isn't, uh, obviously, the gospel he's proclaiming is not an announcement of his own death for sins, right? That hasn't happened yet. So what's he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of God, and the, the only clues we get as to its content is here. Jesus says, the time has been fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's not preaching the gospel of, of the death of, his, of, of his, his own very self yet. That is part of his larger gospel message as he sees the cross before him. But as he's first preaching the good news here, he's speaking about the idea that God is somehow going to begin to reign again, about the kingdom of God. Uh, that somehow uh, there's a sense in, in Jewish history at this time that God has uh, maybe handed his people over to their own disobedience that they have been willfully disobedient to him. And God, sort of like a good uh, a father, is sort of uh, stepping back. Uh, I, have a, uh, I have seven children, 
Um, and uh, one, of my, one of my daughters uh, the other day was, uh, had gotten up on the coffee table, which she's not supposed to, and was dancing around. Like, she danced around the coffee table. And I've told her numerous times not to do this, right? And so, you know, I, I told her to get down and get off. And then, like, lo and behold, an hour later, she's back up there dancing around. Uh, and so this time, instead of rebuking her, I just pretended like I didn't see it. And lo and behold, what happens? She falls off and experiences the consequences of her own folly. And then I can go alongside of her and correct her and say, like, look, I told you not to do that. That was foolish. Right now you've hurt yourself. Um, I think there was a sense in Jewish history that God was doing something similar to that. Now, God's sovereign. He's in control. Um, but he might allow us to experience the, the consequences of our own folly. Uh, but one day he's going to grab hold of the control again and begin to reign again in a specific way in which he's not. So I think the Jewish people were looking forward to that, that God seizing hands, uh, seizing uh, control of the situation with his hands again uh, and steering uh, more directly, and uh, that, that we would understand that to be then uh, the expectation that would be attached to the Messiah. God would begin to rule through his Messiah in a more direct way. So when Jesus is coming proclaiming the kingdom of God, he's, he's announcing that, the king, that, the, that there's going to be a king that's going to come who's going to rule on God's behalf in the way that God wishes. And why can Jesus proclaim this? Well, because he's just been anointed. He's just become the Christ. He was chosen beforehand by God as the Christ before time began, but he doesn't historically become the Christ until he's anointed. I mean, that's what it means to be the Christ. It, the term literally means the anointed one. So he, he doesn't become the Christ until his baptism. That's when the Spirit descends upon him, and historically his, 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 his Christhood is actualized. Okay, so now he can proclaim the good news is, has drawn near. Why? Well, because he's just been anointed as king, so he knows that he's inexorably moving along a path toward full kingship. The full kingship will come. He doesn't have the throne yet, but he will have the throne in the future. He's moving down that path toward full kingship. So repent and believe here, then. I want you to notice that they are not actually a, a part of the gospel because they're the thing uh, that is connected to the response to the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is something else. The repent and the believe are outside of the gospel. And I think it's good to see that as we're trying to get more precise about exactly what the gospel is. So they're connected to some sort of response to the gospel without being gospel proper. All right, but Jesus' fundamental life purpose was to announce this good news of the kingdom of God. He says he has to do this in other towns. I was sent for this purpose, right, to announce his own future kingship that was in the process of happening. He's already anointed, but he has to move toward that path of becoming the full king. All right, I'm going to jump uh, forward here to uh, Paul and the gospel. Um, and uh, this is a, a passage that I think is particularly important, but is neglected in our gospel understandings. In fact, um, when I was writing Gospel Allegiance, I, I looked at the five most popular books out there right now on the gospel, uh, which would be like Matt Chandler's book, The Explicit Gospel, um, R.C. Sproul's got a book, Getting the Gospel Right, you know, uh, John Piper has a book uh, on, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I looked at the, the, the most popular, John MacArthur also has several books on the gospel, looked at them all and um, noticed the degree to which none of them really discuss this passage or even reference it, uh, which is interesting, uh, especially John MacArthur's book, which is on the gospel according to Paul. He doesn't even talk about this passage, which arguably is the most central, uh, along with 1 Corinthians 15, central passage on the gospel that we have where we get clear gospel content. So let's see what we can learn here that maybe, other, uh, that maybe others are neglecting. 
Um, so uh, Paul talks about the gospel. He says, you know, that uh, he's Paul, a, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, right, and set apart for the gospel of God. All of that part in Romans 1.1, like he positions himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ, of Christ, of the Messiah, the king, uh, and that he's an ambassador, an apostle, somebody who's sent out by a powerful figure uh, of this king. Uh, and then he talks about the gospel of God. Uh, he says that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice that the Gospels promised beforehand, okay? It's not just something that is announced in advance, like as if God's like, hey, I've got this really cool trick I can do. I can, I can tell you about the future. I'm going to do it for you, that there's going to be this king who comes someday. Well, that is a cool trick, right? But God is bigger than that and more impressive than that as he actually commits himself to a certain future. He doesn't just say, this is going to happen in the future. He says, I, I swear it. I promise it. Right? I, I am now personally on the hook for this. And so the God who's free becomes unfree by entering into covenants with humanity, and especially through the Davidic, the Davidic promise, right? promising that the, the gospel will take a certain shape even. This gospel concerns his son, so here we get some language uh, that, uh, here I just give you a common translation. That's the New, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, but I'm going to critique it a little bit, so we're going to move to the next slide. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I'm going I'm to jump to the next slide where I, I treat this uh, in more detail and show you kind of under the hood what's happening in the Greek text. Now, some of you have Greek training. Uh, probably the majority of you don't, uh, but that's okay. Um, I, I've, I've kind of put some English language correspondences over here uh, to help you out, and we'll walk through it. But here it says then, when Paul's talking about what is the content of the gospel, first of all, it concerns his son. Peri tu huiuau tu. But then we have two parallel clauses, and one of the things I want you to notice, I've color-coded it to help you see, that Paul identifies two key gospel facts, or two key gospel actions, really. Uh, that the Son did two things. First of all, he came into being, and second of all, he was appointed Son of God in power. Those seem like the things that Paul wanted, wants to emphasize most about the gospel. And the other statements qualify the ways in which those things happen. Okay, so but the, the correspondences uh, happen even underneath the clauses. So uh, Paul is uh, deliberately making some distinctions and com comparing and contrasting between the clauses. So let's work this uh, through then. So the gospel concerns his son, uh, Tugenomenu, who came into being. Paul actually uses the word genomai here in Greek rather than the more often used term for birth, genao. He chooses a specific term that means to be or to exist or to come into being. Uh, partly because he wants to say that Jesus came into being by means of the seed of David. This is probably a reference to Mary. Uh, Mary was actually a part of the tribe of David as well. Uh, and we see evidence from early Christian history that this is how Experimentos David was understood by Irenaeus, for instance, the very first interpreter of this text. So the very first person who interprets Romans in church history understands this to be a reference to Mary. Uh, and then Ignatius of Antioch, he also probably sees it in this way too, although we're not certain he's getting it from Paul. Anyway, and uh, so uh, he came into being by means of the seed of David. So this is a, a reference then to the virgin birth probably. Uh, Katasarka, as it pertains to the realm of the flesh. Uh, so uh, the point is that Jesus didn't come into being in every way, like because he preexisted, right? He only came into being in as much as that pertains to his flesh. Okay, so it's a pretty precise statement of what in the future would be called the incarnation, right? This is really what the first clause is about. It's saying that Jesus, uh, what is the gospel? Jesus' incarnation, 
That's the gospel. Okay, that's the first thing Paul wants to say about it. Uh, the second thing he wants to say about it, uh, to who was appointed son of God in power. Uh, this is probably a whole clause that should be taken together as a whole kind of quasi-title for Jesus. He, he, he received a new office, and the office that he received, we could kind of informally call the title of that son of God in power. Um, and we know that because there's a parallelism to the clauses that the induname sort of supports if you keep it on this line that would be disrupted if you dropped it below. So it's probably a whole phrase to say that Jesus starts as the Son. Okay, he pre-exists alongside God the Father as the Son. He takes on human flesh. But after that, he dies and is raised from the dead. And the resurrection is what triggers his exaltation so that he's no longer just Son of God. He's now Son of God in power and he's reigning forever at the right hand of God. So this is a statement of Jesus' enthronement, if we want to, uh, to cut down to the chase and get right to it. right? As uh, he says, this is, uh, then qualifies it. He says, hagiosunes, as it pertains to the spirit of holiness. So this means that Jesus is the Son of God in power, but functionally the reign of Jesus is experienced wherever the Holy Spirit is present. That seems to be how he's qualifying it here, saying that Jesus is the eternal king, but functionally his kingship is operative in the space where the Holy Spirit is especially present. So I would see this as a statement of especially the church and as the church is extending into the world, uh, how Jesus' reign is operative. So it's sort of a functional statement. And how did all this happen? It happened ex Anastasios necron, by means of his resurrection from among the dead ones. It's actually... Uh, Interestingly, in this and other places, the necron is plural. So the emphasis isn't just that Jesus was dead. It was that he was dead in the midst of others who were also dead. Right? He was in the abode of the dead. Right? Uh, he, was amidst, he was amidst those who were also dead. And this actually has implications because if Jesus was raised not just from the dead, that makes it sound like it's just a one-off miracle. Well, it's neat that God raised him from the dead. The point is that he was dead in the midst of those who were dead, and that has implications, meaning that God has the power to raise those ones too. So um, whenever we, we find statements, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed about, about Christ in Hades and things like that, probably does connect to this ek-necron language uh, ultimately and uh, as, as, as that tradition sort of gets filtered in the Apostles' Creed. Anyway, uh, that's uh, some of the most important things I think I could say about the gospel according to Paul. I'm going to jump past that slide uh, just because uh, I've already talked about it. Something's being sluggish here and slow and weird, though, because I'm pushing the button, but nothing's happening. Well, um, anyway, I, I wanted to take a break anyway right now and do a, take, a, take a chance to see if you guys have any question, questions, dialogue, conversation points. Is I don't want to just talk at you for an hour straight, especially because it's late in the afternoon. I like to dialogue with you and, and get to know as many of you as I can anyway, as that's uh, part of the fun. So, um, yeah. The point then here that I would stress is that, uh, that the gospel, as Paul articulates it in Romans 1, 3 through 4, is about the promises of God reaching fulfillment in the incarnation and the enthronement. So Paul seems to stress the, the enthronement of Jesus here. And notice he said nothing about the atonement, nothing about the cross even, uh, which may trouble us as we might think, like, well, the gospel is all about the cross. Notice Paul actually was comfortable summarizing the gospel sometimes without even mentioning the cross. That's not to say that the cross isn't part of the gospel. It absolutely is, right? As we see other statements like 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, where it's clear that Jesus' death for sins is central to the gospel. Um, but it, it should warn us that maybe the center of gravity is elsewhere. Maybe the center of gravity is on Jesus becoming king. 
Because just in the space of these five verses, Paul's called himself a slave of the king, an apostle of the king. He said that Jesus is the son of God in power, that he's now reigning. And then he goes on to call him Jesus the Christ, the king, right? Our Lord, five times, right? In the space of those four verses, he said something that would indicate that Jesus is the king. So we should, that should, should clue us in that the gospel is really about his kingship in ways that maybe we haven't fully appreciated. All right. Uh, yeah, any questions? Sure. So you're saying his enthronement is part of his kingship is more central than the cross? And the cross would be taken up as part of that larger... Um, yeah, I want to be careful with my language here because I don't like the language of center. I don't think the gospel actually has a center. It's a narrative. The gospel, the, the gospel as, we, as we begin to put it together, is really a story about how Jesus came to be the king ruling over heaven and earth. That's the climax of the gospel would be the language I would use so that we would understand Jesus' death for sins is absolutely essential to the gospel. I, wouldn't, I don't like the language of, cent, of, of center. Uh, sometimes people have pressed back on this to me and said, well, you know, we preach Christ crucified. Yeah, and I say, you preach Christ crucified. Don't forget about the Christ part. Don't empty that of its content, okay? Because you're preaching about a king when you say you preach Christ crucified. Jesus Christ, the Christ part is not his last name, right? This is an honorific title. This means Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the long-awaited king. And we, we just slide so quickly past Jesus Christ. And the problem is, that, like, we, we take that as one reference. Like, it's referring to one, one man in the world uh, or in the, in the heavenly abode now who's now living alongside God the Father. And we, we allow that to point at one, one thing without sort of sliding them apart and saying it is referring to one thing but one, one man without a very important title. Right? That's really the point, is the title. We can't empty the title of its significance. I think that the impact has been that there has been a separation between a salvation decision and, and any kind of meaningful discipleship, or, or not seeing how discipleship has any bearing on salvation. That's been the thing that I think has been the impact that we've, we've really seen. So the, the church is really focused on getting people saved, whether the model is, you know, kind of within the evangelical baptist sort of world of like praying a certain prayer or making a confession of faith or however that's, that's put, or whether it's within the Eastern Orthodox or the Catholic world, right, whether it's baptism that is the ultimate gateway. The point is either way, like, well, you did your, your, your I got saved thing, and now you're sort of good to go. Um, and, well, yeah, you should do some discipleship stuff, like, because you love your Lord, and, you know, like, like he did so much for you, so shouldn't you do something for him, okay? Like, but it's sort of tacked on to the end of the gospel story and the salvation story, and is made to have no bearing on it. And that's part of the concern is that it, it, it would seem that if Jesus is the king is actually part of the gospel, um, then the, the, story, the story begins to change about what, the, what, what are you even responding to when you're responding to the gospel. Like if it doesn't include Jesus as, as the king, then if you're responding to just purely the atonement or an exchange transaction, or if you have a transactional gospel, maybe you're not responding to the whole gospel in the first place. Maybe praying like a prayer at saying, Jesus, uh, I know that you died for my sins and I love you uh, and uh, I pray this prayer so now I trust in your, 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 your forgiveness of me and that, that I'm okay. Um, maybe that's not a response to the full gospel. Right? So it's driven a wedge between discipleship and a salvation decision. It seems like we're maybe more familiar or comfortable with Lord rather than King. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? 
Yeah, we are. And um, I, I think that, yeah, certainly this goes back in, into, you know, a debate that happened in, you know, 80s, 90s uh, between the free grace camp and the lordship salvation camp uh, with, you know, people like Zane Hodges who were part of the free grace movement and championing that. And then we had like John MacArthur and company uh, advocating for a lordship salvation. So within that, I think that there was, a, a, on the one hand, a, a proper and, and correct affirmation that Jesus is Lord, and that's essential to the gospel. So within that debate, I think MacArthur clearly got that right. Um, but I think that there's some imprecision still in his project, as I think that he doesn't really, um, he doesn't really mobilize the lordship of Jesus or the kingship of Jesus enough within his whole system, partly because he tends to see faith as purely trust. And I think that when we see faith as purely trust, or, or, or he, wouldn't, he wouldn't identify it just with belief. He would say it involves something beyond belief, like a, an act of trusting. I think we evacuate uh, the, the Greek word pistis, the Greek word that we translate faith, uh, of some important meaning. And that's actually, the, that's actually what I'm going to talk, talk about next if I move back into some more formal stuff. But right now my slides are acting really wonky, so I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I can't even move my screen, so I'm not, I don't know if I've just frozen up or what. Are your slides online? Uh, they are, but uh, that's okay. Um, I, uh, I, can, I can just talk extemporaneously as I've talked about this material in a lot of different contexts. I do apologize. Um, the next part, though, as we continue on in Romans 1, uh, after Romans 1, 1 through 4, where Paul talks about the, the, the content of the gospel, is the very next thing is he talks about the purpose of the gospel. Um, and so we sometimes just slide right by that as we think, well, the purpose of the gospel is so that we can, you know, go to heaven when we die or so that we can get saved or so that people's lives can be changed. It's oftentimes sloppy and vague. Uh, Paul's very specific as he says, we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of pistis among all the nations. We received grace and apostleship for the obedience of pistis, the obedience of faith among all the nations. And we know that's actually the purpose of the gospel because Paul says it again at the end of Romans. He talks about, he says, my gospel, you know, and the preaching about Jesus. And he goes on and says, you know, that this was something that was, you know, revealed and it was a mystery, but it has now been made known. Uh, and then he says, again, at the end, and that it's for the obedience of pistis among all the nations. So he says that's the purpose of the gospel. He says it twice. And he says something similar in several other passages, too. And I marked you through this evidence in the Gospel Allegiance book. Um, but, uh, yeah, so what does this mean? The obedience of pistis, right? We, we oftentimes think, uh, and, uh, and among all the nations, right? We often think that it's this vague salvation. Paul has a specific vision. It's that all the nations will practice allegiant obedience to Jesus the King, okay? And so that this is going to be, that, that's what salvation looks like at the end of the day. It's not our souls floating off to heaven, right? It's a vision of the new Jerusalem. And within the new Jerusalem, you have vision actually as part of that of the nations coming bearing goods there. There's like a, a pilgrimage dimension to it as, as the nations are all coming to experience somehow the goodness of Jesus the King. So we want to keep that in mind as the final horizon of our resurrected bodies, we're resurrected into a new creation, and that somehow this is bound up with God's vision for all the nations practicing the obedience of faith. Now, this language, obedience of faith, um, the word pistis is actually a word that uh, has caused trouble, I think, because we've tended to psychologize it and make it uh, an internal mental sort of cogitative thing when in actuality the word uh, has a lot larger range. This is something translators have known for ages, and you'll find that the word pistis is in numerous places in the New Testament translated as faithfulness. 
Um, like I can give you a, a couple examples. Um, one example would be uh, in Romans 3.3 3, where it says, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faith? Right? That clearly means God's faithfulness. It's always translated that way by contemporary editions. Right? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faith? It's about God's fidelity, his faithfulness to his people. That would be one example where we see pistis translated as faithfulness. And there are numerous other examples where it needs to be translated as faithfulness. So one of the things that's sort of bedeviled, I think, the conversation about salvation is that the word faith, here's, here's the problem, is that when we have heard the word faith, we've thought it means trust in. Okay, and that's all it means. It, and and we, we've tended to see that as the important uh, part of, of what is being mobilized when the word pistis is used. But on the other side, the word also means faithfulness toward, loyalty toward, allegiance toward. And this can be demonstrated from ancient evidence, from the New Testament, from all kinds of, of places that this is true. So uh, in light of that, there has been a tendency then to, whenever we're talking about salvation, well, we must be talking about the trust in part, because if we're talking about the faithfulness toward part, well, then we might be doing works. Uh-oh. Right? And there's concern about that. But I think that we've missed the boat. Um, and I think that what Paul has in view here when he's speaking about the gospel, right, and responding to a king is he's talking about allegiance to this king. Right? He's saying, I want, I want to, the purpose of the gospel is that all people will practice allegiance, the obedience of Pistis, which is like loyal obedience or faithful obedience to Jesus the king. As Paul continues, the next time he uses the, 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 he uses the word faith several other times uh, in Romans 1, they all, probably, they all probably mean faithfulness, if you read carefully. Uh, and then when he gets to Romans 1.17, uh, Paul says, that's the passage where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who does the pistis action, whatever this pistis action might be, right? First for the Jew, then for the Greek, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And he says, for in it, Right? In the gospel is what he's referring to. Uh, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he says, by pistis, for pistis. It says in Greek, ek pistaos, ace piston. Uh, I would translate that by faith, for faith. So the idea here then is mostly that the, the ek pistaos, by faith, means by faithfulness or by allegiance. So the idea is that Jesus was the allegiant one. The righteousness of God was unveiled when Jesus was allegiant to God the Father by pursuing the path of the cross unto death. And that when he did so, he opened up a space for our allegiant response to Jesus as that king so that we could then be allegiant to him as the great king so that it is by Jesus' allegiance to God the Father and that's for the purpose of our allegiance to Jesus the King. That might sound a little bit far-fetched to you, but I would invite you to look at Romans 3.22, where Paul has the same dynamic, uh, where, he's, where he speaks about, on the one hand, Jesus' faithfulness, using the phrase pistis Christu, and then he then says that this is for all those who do the pistis action. Again, it's about Jesus' agency and then our agency. Galatians 2.16, you see the exact same thing. Uh, where it, there's a, an oscillation between Jesus' agency and between our agency with regard to the pistis action. So the one pistis inspires the other. So the idea would be that Jesus' faithfulness opens up like a participatory space for our faithfulness so that we are saved by allegiance alone. This is 
confirmed then as Paul brings evidence by looking at Habakkuk. So Paul cites then right afterwards Habakkuk 2.4, right? He says, uh, but the righteous one will live by faith or by pistis. When you go back and you look at the context in Habakkuk, the problem that's happening in Habakkuk is that, uh, is that, uh, that, that essentially the nation of Judea is, is being unfaithful to God uh, and that Habakkuk is upset about it. He says, hey, there's no justice here. What's going on? Aren't you going to do something to correct the problem, God? And God says, yep, I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they're going to correct the problem here. And, uh, and, and then Habakkuk goes, what? Are you serious? Are you kidding? Like they're more unrighteous than, than, than we are. Like, how could that possibly be a demonstration of your justice? Because they're more unrighteous than we are. And, uh, and, and, and Habakkuk kind of says, I'm going to wait for you to respond to this, God. And God gives a response to Habakkuk. And the response is that there's going to be a time period where God is going to bring judgment, uh, but the righteous one will live by pistis in the midst of this judgment. Uh, and it clearly refers to covenant loyalty there. The word in Hebrew that for uh, behind it, the, the pistis word group is emunah in Hebrew, and the word consistently means faithfulness in the, in the Hebrew Bible, loyalty, those kinds of ideas. Covenant loyalty, covenant truth, like those things are what, what are in view here, not faith in something. So the righteous one lives by covenant faithfulness to God in the midst of crisis. So Paul's mobilizing that language with the Bacchic. He says, uh, just like Jesus was the righteous one, and he followed God the Father by pistis unto death, and, he, and what happened? He lived. God gave him resurrection life. The righteous one will live by faith. Right? So God declared Jesus to be the righteous one because he passed through the crisis of judgment by being allegiant. And he says the same is true for you, that you will pass through the crisis of judgment and be declared righteous also whenever you exercise your loyalty to Jesus the King. So that Pistis is opening up this participatory space uh, between Jesus and us, where we share in his pistis by following his pattern as we're, uh, as we're, as we're inspired by the Spirit to do so. All right, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and open it back up to the floor uh, to see if you have any questions, since I just dumped a lot of information on you. Yes, you're in the back. Yeah, so I have about uh, six months in processing some of this because I was listening to the podcast from last year. So uh, between you guys and the Bonhoeffer Project, and obviously there's some... I guess you guys talk to me. I don't know. Um, but this this kind of whole kingdom uh, return essence of the gospel combined this with this understanding of allegiance or faithfulness was really challenging to me as I listened to the podcast. Coming from a reform lens, I had to work through some things um, on my own, but that's, that's part of the beauty of all this. But one of the things that I did as a practical step as a discipler is I've been discipling people in my church for over a year. I guess got to this church beginning of 2018. And so I thought, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my people, my little test group, and I'm going to ask them to give me a paragraph definition of the gospel. Just just write a paragraph for me. Yeah. And, um, and just to see what I got. I got back the most abysmal answers I've ever gotten. <laughs> and, and I was really shocked. These are leaders in my church. I mean, these yeah. are my, some of my elders and some of the people I've been talking yeah. to. Yeah, I've done that exercise with lots of different crowds. Oftentimes when I have a setting like this, I'll open by saying, share the gospel with the person next to you, you've got 90 seconds. And then I've had people kind of, you know, give me feedback from the floor. It's interesting to see what we get sometimes. Sometimes they're cued in, though. They're coming into a conversation about gospel, allegiance, and King Jesus. So that might be coloring what we see. But yeah, go, go ahead, keep going. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, 
Yeah, so so I did that, but I had already done mine, and, and all of that was, I had not gotten that book, uh, Discipleship Gospel, yet, where they had their 100-word definition, and that was the hook that got me to get the book, and so I wanted to see what theirs was. But then I saw how they framed it with kingdom language, and that was absent from mine. I mean, mine was completely not framed in kingdom language. And so combining all these things for me, as a discipleship-based pastor, it does help me just naturally to have conversations with people about what it is to obey Jesus. When you frame it in kingdom language and we, we return Jesus to his rightful kingship, then the, the negotiation and the debate goes away because he's clearly articulated as a king. He's got a kingdom. And if you choose not to obey the king, you're just outright disobeying. Yeah. And that's not... Yeah, you haven't repented. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It reframes repentance from like articulating a list of sins I'm sorry for to saying, like, my whole orientation to life was wrong because I, I didn't have the right king. And, yeah, I was doing all kinds of wrong things as part of it. There's a list. It's real, right? But, like, as I, as I, as I move to affirm him as the king and I'm giving my allegiance to him, right, it sort of frames repentance within a, a sort of a holistic framework that's just, not, that's just not individually oriented around what have I done wrong, okay? It's like, well, what I've done wrong fundamentally is fundamentally not follow the king. It's what I've been doing wrong, right? And I need to change my life and get on board with confessing Jesus as king. So just to take that and what you've been saying, I just I put this two together. And you're just picking up the old covenant language in the new covenant of covenant faithfulness to God. Because that's what all those prophets were doing. Yeah. Saying, right? you're, not, you're, you're not obeying me, and so repent and turn to me. And you're right. Jesus says when he comes... That's what the, you know, sermon yeah. is all about. Absolutely right. Some of this gets gets buried in translation as lo the word chesed, right, is often translated as love, but means covenant faithfulness probably more properly in the Old Testament. Covenant love, like there's covenant loyalty attached even to the idea of love. So when we hear like love the Lord your God with all your heart, like like language like that we tend to emotionalize, right, and psychologize, but it, it was actually much more practically oriented toward covenant obedience uh, that we just don't really pick up on very quickly. Great observation. Yeah, keep going. It's the continuity between the old and the new. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Other other comments, questions? How are we doing for time? Just so I, I stay on track. When do? How 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 much longer? Ten more minutes? Okay. Yeah, sure. So just kind of pairing up with all this, like I would like you to do like a thirty-second version because things get so complicated. Like what type of atonement and justification? Like. You read 10,000 pages on this, and then you're trying to talk to someone who doesn't know anything. And so, like, how would you boil that down? Your 100-word yeah. word approach. Yeah, if my slide hadn't died, I did have um, a slide that, um, that had the gospel in what I would identify as the 10 elements that are constantly repeated whenever we look at gospel content in the Bible. So like when we look at the speeches and acts and we take what Paul says about the gospel and we find what's the common ground there uh, so that uh, the idea would then be the overarching framework is that we're talking about the process of how Jesus became king. All right, that Jesus is the king is the overarching framework for the gospel and that within that that the father sent the son as promised. Okay, uh, and that when he sent the son, he took on human flesh, but this wasn't just randomly, it was by means of the seed of David, so, so that it was a, a birth into the Davidic lineage, which was a further fulfillment of prophecy, right? That he, he uh, died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, so there was a scripture shape to his death. Uh, he was buried, uh, he was resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to many witnesses, 
And then after that, I would say this part is the climax of the gospel because a lot of the energy in gospel proclamation ends with God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, right? God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. That's sort of the climactic energy of gospel proclamation so that it's Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God as the king. Would be, uh, the, the, that would be the step that I would say. It's not the center of the gospel, but the, cl the climax of it. Uh, and as the king, the first act the king does really is that he and the father send the spirit. Uh, I would, that's, it's common that we mentioned as part, as part of gospel proclamations that the spirit has been sent in some way or another. We did see it in the Romans 1-4 passage, for instance. And that Jesus will return again as the judge so that this king will come again and will, and will exercise judgment uh, is also part of the gospel. That's something that, um, that uh, sometimes people say, well, that's not the good news. That's the bad news. No, but it's actually part of the good news and uh, is that God, that, that God will correct all the wrongs in the world that we see. That's, that's certainly good news. Uh, that would be what I would see as the full gospel proclamation. So as we, as we go out and we preach that to people, I think that we, on the one hand, want to make sure we give them the full narrative of Jesus. And I think that something that we can do is, as we contextualize it, though we don't need to feel like we need to give all those things equal weight every time we present the gospel. Sometimes maybe you need to really focus on his kingship, and I don't think we should ever neglect that as it's the climax. Uh, but other times you might want to focus on the incarnation and say, you know, like, hey, you're, you're experiencing suffering right now. Did you, did you know God suffered? Did you know that, that, Jesus, that Jesus is God and that he actually gets it? Like, like that he's entered into our life? through the incarnation that he took on human flesh because he cares that much about us. That might be what somebody, that might be the part of the gospel somebody needs to hear, right? So as we contextualize it, um, I don't think that we have to like be rigid and like trot up through the 10 points. I think it's good to err on the side of a fuller gospel, like as we're trying to help people understand all of it, um, especially when we're teaching about it. Um, but when we're presenting the gospel to other people, I think that different times people need, you know, different parts of the gospel emphasized. Yeah. You uh, earlier mentioned that the uh, in Mark chapter one that repent and believe yeah. are not technically part of the gospel, but how is a gospel if we don't also have the step repent, believe, and then even follow? Yeah, I wasn't tracking. Sure, yeah. So I would understand the gospel proper to be a narrative about Christ. It really, it is. It's it's nothing that to do with us other than that the offer of salvation is for us, right? As Jesus is the victorious King over all His enemies. But that for us to appropriate any of the gospel benefits, uh, that we need to respond to the king. So that would involve repenting from other allegiances, right? Following Jesus uh, and, and making him the king of our life. Uh, and, uh, and that obviously that involves also believing the narrative to be true about Jesus. I think that that's um, fairly non-negotiable. We could maybe just, we could maybe um, hope that it's true um, and trust that it's true without being 100% persuaded all the time that it's true. I think that might be sufficient uh, to, uh, to, to still count. There are times when we all have doubts. I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, but um, yeah, so I, and then I would understand that from the gospel, then benefits flow to us. Uh, and like a benefit, like for example, would be our adoptions as sons and daughters um, would be a peace would be uh, justification. The righteous standing that we have is actually, that's something that comes to be ours through the gospel, but it's actually not part of the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus did for us. Right? Any benefit that we get from the gospel, we don't want to make part of the gospel. And I, if I was to point again at an error that I think we see in Piper, Sproul, and, and those who are in that stream, it's that they make justification by faith the center of the gospel. The Bible never once says that justification is even part of the gospel can't find a single statement where it says that justification is part of the gospel. Now, it does say that the gospel reveals 
the righteousness of God, but that's probably because the righteousness of God connects to justification as a benefit of the gospel, but it's not actually part of the gospel proper, I would argue. So we get, we're getting into some like tricky, you know, kind of distinctions, but I think they're important ones. Yeah, question? Sure. In that respect, um, let's talk about baptism for just a moment. Uh, kind of tying in to that question, is there any kind of special significance to why baptism relative to allegiance to a king? Is that, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, so uh, what's the significance of baptism with regard to allegiance to the king? Um, certainly, I don't, I don't know that it connects specifically to an allegiance ceremony or an idea. Like, we see it, it was happening with John the Baptist, you know, obviously before Jesus. And so it wasn't a call within John's, John's ministry to an ultimate allegiance. Like, he was pointing to the allegiant one, to, you know, the one that would, you would need to give allegiance to that was still to come, right? Um, it would, certainly does seem to connect to Jewish um, rituals of cleansing, you know, the mikvot and things like that that were part of their world. So it does seem to have um, like a connotation of cleansing around it. Obviously, that's, as that's taken into, into the Christian world, it's an identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, like we, we quite clearly see that in Romans 6, you know, that you're, you're baptized into his death, into his resurrection. So I think we can see that through the immersion and the, and the, and the raising sort of idea. Um, but how does that connect specifically to allegiance? Um, I don't think the ceremony itself does, other than that we should understand faith as something that you have to embody, right? That, that it would be the first step in embodying your faith, so that whenever you profess your allegiance to Jesus, right, like you have to do that again and again throughout your life. Your body has to be allegiant to Jesus. This is what it means to be saved, is to walk the path of discipleship. So that, uh, that, that baptism then is the first act of allegiance to Jesus the King, and this involves your body. Is yeah. there any connection from his anointing to our anointing? What? Through baptism? To, to Jesus' anointing, to our anointing? Through well, you, you mentioned the baptism yeah. being what was anointing him. Yeah, that he was anointed at, at baptism. Well, it's the Spirit's descent on him, right, in the midst of his baptism. Yeah, certainly I, I think that would be probably the normative Christian understanding would have been that uh, whenever you're baptized, you receive the Spirit and are integrated into the community that is already Spirit-filled. So the problem, I think, in a lot of our salvation theory is we tend to individualize Spirit possession and, and, and um, our own soteriology without seeing it as something that is moving us into the community of the saved, right? So that the Spirit is really properly like housed in the temple of God's people. Right? It, it may be in our individual temples too, but it is in as much as we become incorporated into the larger body that is spirit-filled, so that it's not an isolated, it's never an isolated experience. Right? When we receive the spirit, uh, we're receiving the spirit that's already the common property of the body that already possesses it, uh, that is already the church. So I think that a lot of our problems in salvation theory you know, are connected to um, an inadequate communal idea of things like this experience of the Spirit. Notice there's a, one of the things I would like to point out to the gospel that as, I'm, as I'm describing to you is it has a Trinitarian structure, right? The Father sends the Son so that the, the Son then, you know, uh, the, the Son does the events that we already mentioned, dies for sins, you know, is raised, so on and so forth. And what, is, what happens next? Well, then the Father and the Son send the Spirit, right? This is, in fact, this is basic Trinitarian theology, uh, when we get right down to it, that's how we, we distinguish between Father, Son, and Spirit. Ultimately, as those uh, eternal relationships are best described through um, relationships that involve origin uh, and, um, and sending out, right? 
And so, um, yeah, I think that it, it connects directly to the doctrine of the Trinity. So it, it's very intimately related in, in the way that I would frame it. One of the things I'd also like to point out, though, the gospel, as I've described it, those 10 steps are totally agreed upon by Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox. There'd be nothing within those 10 steps that are a point of disagreement um, with regard to the gospel. And I think that's interesting as we think about ecumenical relationships. I'm not saying that there isn't any problems with Catholic or Orthodox theology. I'm a Protestant for reasons. Um, but uh, the reasons don't actually include the gospel itself. Um, and uh, I think that's significant. So I, I get into that some more in, in gospel allegiance. And um, yeah, I, I, I want to just thank all of you. Um, obviously, if you want to connect with me personally, like I'm happy to stay and chat uh, as I've got some time and I uh, would love to connect with you or you know, connect over social media or whatever you wish, right, as, as, as you can find me there. All right, thank you everybody, and thanks to Renew for um, hosting this, this marvelous um, event. That's it for today's episode. Check out Winfield Bevan's ebook that we mentioned at the top of this episode by going to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Multiply Disciples by Winfield Bevins. Thanks for listening.